Turn with me to John chapter 14. John chapter 14, we'll be looking at verses 8 through 11. And considering the Father revealed. Give attention to God's holy word. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is sufficient for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father, so how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. Even as we sang in Psalm 95, we come to bow ourselves down in your presence and asking you, O Lord, to bless us during this time of preaching, which is an element of your worship. We ask, O Lord, that you would pour out your Spirit from heaven that we might behold your glory. We ask this all for Jesus' sake. Amen. I think most of you probably will remember the first time that you learned how to swim in the ocean. Perhaps you remember the time that you taught your children how to swim in the ocean. If you've never swam in the ocean, though I doubt anybody here has never been to the ocean, except maybe some of the young ones, let me describe it for you. One of the things that happens when you first learn to swim in the ocean is you, you start walking out into the water and, and you realize rather quickly that when the water gets up to about your knees, if, if bigger waves start coming, th- this water can throw me around pretty easily. And as you go further into the water and the water rises up to your chest, you, you can feel it throwing you around. And you begin to learn through experience the ocean is oceanic. There's a lot of water in the ocean. And as that water starts rocking and rolling and pushing you around, you realize this thing will throw me all over the place. And as you're learning to swim in the ocean, you, you may go out a little bit, but when you get a little bit scared, what, what do you do? You, you back up and you get to a point where your feet can touch the sand. And once you're at a place where your feet can touch the sand, everything seems a little bit safer. Everything's a little bit easier. You're still in the midst of those big waves. You're still in the midst of the ocean. But because you have your feet on solid ground, you can walk back to the shore if you need to. You won't have to try and swim against this. You can just walk your way back to shore. Well, this life is very much like swimming in the ocean. As you're born into this world, as Job says, man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. And as you begin to wade further into life's waters, you begin to realize that this life is turbulent. And that if uh, the Lord so chose, the waves of this life will toss me around like a cork in a tub. 
And you begin to learn that the circumstances of life are troubling, they're scary, and we need somewhere to put our feet. We need somewhere to find rest. And as many saints in the past recorded in the scriptures, as we're going to learn in this passage as well, the only place for the soul to find comfort in the middle of life's troubles is in the glory of God. The only place that we find the one thing that is unchangeable, just as the solid ground is not taken away by the movement of the waves, the one thing that will never change is the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And what we're going to see in this passage is that when the heart is troubled, a Christian looks for the glory of the Father in the face of Jesus Christ. When the heart is troubled, a Christian looks for the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We're going to notice three things in this passage. A good request, a gentle rebuke, and a gracious repetition. There's a good request in verse 8. There's a gentle rebuke in verses 9 and 10. And there's a gracious repetition in verse 11. A good request in verse 8. A gentle rebuke in verses 9 and 10. And a gracious repetition in verse 11. We begin to look first at Philip's request, but remember the context. I think sometimes in John 14, it's easy to forget because there's so much meat and truth and light and grace and glory in these next chapters, we can forget the context. John 14, verse 1, let not your heart be troubled. That means the disciples' hearts are troubled. They're struggling. They're being tossed around by the waves of providence, and they're not sure where they can put their feet. That's what provokes Thomas's question that we saw last week in that sermon. That's what provokes Philip's request here in this verse. Notice what Philip requests. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. Isn't this interesting? Christ has told them, I'm going to be betrayed by Judas. He's already left, and he's on his way back. I'm I'm going to the cross. I'm going to suffer wrath for sin. I'm going to be spit on by the Romans. I'm going to be mocked by the centurions. I'm going to be cursed to my face by the Pharisees and the high priests. Jesus Christ, the friend of sinners whom they recognize as the Christ, is about to be taken away from them. Now, I think if you and I were in this situation, we we might pray for something like a a different circumstance. We we might pray for, you know, Lord, can can we just get out of here? Let's just leave Jerusalem. 
Philip doesn't pray for that. He makes a request, and it's a good request. Show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. What Philip is asking for is for Jesus to show them the glory of God. Show me the glory of God, and that's all we need. Our hearts are being upended by this providence that's about to happen to us. Just show us your glory. Show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. This is the same thing that Moses prayed in Exodus 33, verse 18. Right after the golden calf incident, the Lord told Moses, these people are wicked, they've broken my covenant, I'm going to get rid of them and start over with you. Moses pleads, forgive them, God promises, and then God God promises to forgive them, and then God says, you go take them up to the land, I'm not going to go with you. And Moses prays and says, Lord, if you don't go with us, how will the people know that we are separate from all the nations of the earth if you are not with us? And so the Lord promises, I will go with you. And then in the midst of all of this trial and tribulation that Moses is going through, he says, show me your glory. Show me your glory. Exodus 33, verse 18. Psalm 27, turn there. Psalm 27, David is praying. Psalm 27, David prays. Now you may, you may remember David's life was a life of toil, tribulation, temptation, being hunted by Saul, betrayed by his own son. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked came against me to eat up my flesh, my enemies and my foes, they stumbled and fell. Though an army may encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war may rise against me, in this I will be confident. One thing I've desired of the Lord, that will I seek. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For in the time of trouble, he shall hide me in his pavilion. In the secret place of his tabernacle he shall hide me. He will set my feet high upon a rock. Do you know what's in the secret place of God's tabernacle? God's glory displayed. This is what we find also in Psalm 80. Psalm 80 is uh, a psalm praying for deliverance. Just a couple verses in this one. Notice it's repeated three times. Verse 3. Psalm 80, verse 3, Restore us, O God, cause your face to shine, and we will be saved. Verse 7, Restore us, O God of hosts, cause your face to shine, and we shall be saved. Verse 19, Restore us, O Lord God of hosts, cause your face to shine, and we shall be saved. Show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. So Philip's request is a good request. We need to learn a lesson from Philip. Doesn't matter what you're going through. Whatever waves are tossing you, whatever currents are swirling you around, 
The one thing that you need right now is to see the glory of God. Just as Moses prayed, just as David prayed, just as the psalmist prays, and just as Philip requested here, show us your glory. And if we can behold God's glory, that enables us to endure anything. You know, at this point, a common question, uh, there's, there's a good answer here for a common question uh, uh, you sometimes hear. People will often ask, how can heaven be joyful if I know that some of my loved ones are in hell? How can we have joy in heaven if I know loved ones are not there? What about all the memory of the regret that I had in this life? How can I have joy in heaven if all of these other things are true? The answer is the glory of God. You see, God's glory is more glorious than your sorrows are sorrowful. God's glory is such that when you once behold it in heaven forever, it will, as the book of Revelation says, wipe every tear away. Now this doesn't mean that our concern for our loved ones is irrelevant. It doesn't mean it's worthless. This doesn't mean that our sorrows are not real sorrows. It doesn't mean that our regrets are not bitter and painful. But it means that God's glory is greater. It means that God's glory is better. It means that God's glory, as Philip says, is sufficient. And so Philip's request is a good request. The problem, however, with Philip's request is that he's missing what's right in front of his eyes. He's not looking in the right place to see the glory of the Father. That's his mistake. And that's how Christ rebukes him. Rebukes him gently. Notice how Jesus rebukes him. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long that you have not known me, Philip? Uses his name. He appeals to him not only as a friend, but as a long-standing disciple. You may remember Philip is one of the disciples that's been with Christ from the very beginning of John's Gospel. Philip has been walking with Christ the entire time. Arguably, he was probably one of the first disciples to start following Christ. And so Christ appeals to him as a friend that he's known for a long time. Have I been with you so long, Philip, and you still don't know who I am? It's a gentle rebuke. Notice also that there's two parts to Christ's rebuke here. One has to do with knowledge, meaning what we know. The other one has to do with the way we know. So one has to do with knowledge. The other one has to do with the way we gain that knowledge, or how do we arrive at that knowledge. First, we deal with knowledge. Notice this is verse 9. Uh, have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me? And so Christ is, is appealing to Philip. He says, I've been with you so long, you still don't know who I am. You still don't understand what is right in front of your eyes. You don't know me. He adds at the end of verse 9, He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? 
You, you really don't know who I am when you confess that I'm the Son of God, the Christ, come in the flesh. You really don't know what it means when you told me that I have the words of life in John chapter 6. So the problem here is knowledge. Notice what Christ says about himself. He that sees Christ sees the Father. This is a reference to the incarnate Son of God. It's not a reference to the second person of the Trinity before he becomes incarnate. This is a reference to the Son as incarnate. That's who's talking to Philip right now. He who has seen me, the incarnate Son of God, has seen the Father. This is reflected also in Colossians. Turn to Colossians chapter 1. This is one of the main points of Paul's argument in the book of Colossians. Uh, Colossians 1, starting in verse 15, Paul writes to this church and he says, Colossians 1.15, He is the image of the invisible God. Just as an aside uh, related to this morning's passage, this is why we don't make our own images. God has already given us the image. His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by Him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through Him and for Him, and He is before all things, and in Him all things consist. He's the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things He may have the preeminence, pay attention, for it pleased the Father that in Him all the fullness should dwell. In the incarnate Son of God, all the fullness of deity is contained. How this works, I don't know. But I know that the incarnate Christ is the image of the invisible God. Just as he tells Philip in John 14. This leads us to a very important truth. To think of Christ as anything less than God the Son incarnate is to not know Him. Anybody who thinks or speaks or teaches about Jesus Christ as anything less than God the Son incarnate doesn't know the Lord Jesus Christ. That's part of Christ's point here to Philip. One other thing we need to be aware of. Some of us may be Phillips. Have you been with me so long and you don't know who I am? Some of us may be Phillips in the sense that we don't, we don't know who Christ is. We, we may have been in the church for so long and yet don't know who Christ is. On the other level, some of us may be Phillips in the sense that we've been in the church so long, but we haven't grown in the knowledge we think we've grown in. Let me, let me speak plain. 
There's a reason the Bible repeats time and time again the simple message of the gospel. Because no matter how long we've been in the church, no matter how long we've worn the name of Christian, we need to learn it. Because oftentimes, we don't really know it. Just as Philip didn't know his Lord. Now, let me make a uh, clarification here, because I realize the way that I phrase that could be misinterpreted. I'm not saying I think Philip is not a believer at this point. That's not my point. I think Philip is a believer. That's why he's asking to see the Father. That's a request of faith. What I think is Philip is ignorant, he's confused, his heart is troubled. He doesn't, he, he doesn't quite get it yet. And so Christ has to teach him further. Finally, the last thing we learn about this is that if anyone wants to know what God is like, you have to look at Jesus. If you want to know what God the Creator is like, if you want to know what the Almighty El Shaddai, El Elyon, the Most High God over heaven and earth is like, you have to look at Jesus. That's the only way to know what God is like. He doesn't conform to our imaginations. He doesn't conform to our ideas. He doesn't conform to our idol-making. He has revealed himself in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now here, when we get to the next part of the Lord's rebuke, is a critical step we all have to keep in mind. Christ has just gently rebuked Philip with the knowledge, this is who I am. Now he's going to gently rebuke him with the way that you gain this knowledge, with the way that you obtain what Christ is saying about himself. And the way of gaining this, the way of knowing Christ as the glory of the Father is by faith, not by sight. Notice what he says. Do you not believe? Do you not believe, Philip? You see, it's not a matter of sight. We can say very baldly from this passage, Jesus is sitting right in front of him. And Philip is looking at him, yet he doesn't see him. Because he's not looking at him with the eyes of faith. It is by faith that we gain this knowledge of Christ. Notice what he says in verse 10. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? Skip down to verse 11. Christ repeats this same statement. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me. One of the first things that that we have to understand about our faith. Our faith is a sense of trusting reliance upon Christ. We, as it were, cast our lives into His hands. But faith also receives truth from God. Faith also receives knowledge from the Word of God and from the Son of God. And so what Christ is telling me is like, believe me, and believe that this doctrine is true. The Father is in me, and I am in the Father. There's no rational proof. There's no logical demonstration. There's no cross-references. There is simply the Son of God incarnate telling Philip, Believe me, this is the truth. The Father is in me, and I am in you. I mean, uh, 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 and I am in him, sorry. That's later. Christ being in us. 
And so there's this doctrine that we are to believe about Christ. Notice also that Christ attaches authority to his doctrine. Look at what he says. Verse 10, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who is in me does the works. See, Christ appeals to the Father's authority for his doctrine. He says, I'm speaking these words, but they're not my words. They're the Father's words. And the works prove whose words these are. It's the Father in me who does the works. And so there's appeal to authority. There's doctrine and there's authority. You know, in this, in this passage, like many other passages in the Gospels, Christ is proving himself to be the prophet of Deuteronomy 18. Turn to Deuteronomy 18 with me. Deuteronomy 18, verse 17. Deuteronomy 18, the Lord promises to raise up a prophet who will speak the Lord's words. And he also gives the test for that prophet's authority in this passage. Deuteronomy 18, verse 17, the Lord said to me, what they have spoken is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren and will put my words in his mouth. The words I speak to you are not on my own authority, but they are the Father's words. I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And it shall be that whoever will not hear my words, which he speaks in my name, I will require it of him. But the prophet which presumes to speak a word in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how shall we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? There's a question of authority here. How do we tell the difference? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not happen or come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. That means the opposite is true. If the prophet speaks in the name of the Lord and what he says comes to pass, then that is the word of the Lord. The works verify the doctrine. The mighty deeds that the prophet does ratify that he's a prophet from the Lord. And so in John 14, Christ says, the words I speak to you are not mine, they're his. And the works that he does through me prove that it's his authority and not mine. And so Christ is appealing to this criteria in Deuteronomy 18. He is the prophet who speaks the Lord's words to the people. And therefore... It is by faith alone that we can see the glory of the Father in the Son. Let me, let me unfold this for you a little bit. When we say that this knowledge is only gained by faith, what we mean is that you will never experience the truth of this until you believe it. You have to believe God's promise first before you enjoy the blessing of the promise. And so if Christ says, the Father is in me and I am in him, how can you say, show us the Father? 
I am the image of the Father. We have to believe that. We have to, by faith in the authority of God who's speaking it, believe this is the truth. And then as we believe, we begin to grow in that knowledge and experience. This again, as I mentioned uh, briefly, but uh, uh, it bears repeating here in this instance. This is why we don't make images of Christ. Images of Christ can never represent Christ. Why? Because of what I said earlier. Christ is the Son of God incarnate. To think or speak in any way that takes away from His identity as the eternal, infinite, invisible, incomprehensible Son of God incarnate is to think, speak, or teach about Him wrongly. An image of Christ can only represent His human nature. It can't represent His divine person. And if it can't represent His divine person, you're not representing Christ. You're representing an image of a Middle Eastern man or an African man or an Asian man or whatever culture you have. They produce images of Jesus according to their own culture. Interesting, isn't it? This is why we don't have images of Christ, because it's not by sight that we behold his glory. It's by faith, brothers and sisters. You must look to him in faith to behold the glory of the Father. And so because of this, Christ gives a gracious repetition. He repeats the old message that first brought Philip to faith. Verse 11, believe. You've been with me a long time. You still haven't gotten it, Philip. Believe. He repeats the same lesson again. And again. And again. And again. Christ graciously repeats the same gospel invitation. Remember what I said before. This is not so much personal trust that's being emphasized. That's not really on the table here. Philip is a believer. What's being emphasized is reception of doctrine. Notice how it's written in verse 11. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Believe it. Even though you may not realize it, believe this. Now, brothers and sisters, let me me just repeat and emphasize something for you here. It really is when our hearts are troubled that faith is tested. It's when the ways of life come crashing upon the little uh, raft of our souls. And it's when the trials begin to stir things up that our faith is really tested and Satan's temptations come and say, did God really say? Did Jesus really mean that he's the glory of the Father? Is his glory really enough for you? Is that really all that you need, or do you actually need a new spouse? Do you actually need a new house? Maybe that's what you need. Maybe the glory of God is not enough in this instance. And as Paul says, we are not ignorant of Satan's devices. As he says in Ephesians 6, above all, taking the shield of faith by which you will quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. 
Brothers and sisters, if you take nothing away from this message, you must take this away. Your faith in the Word of God is the most precious thing that you own. Your faith in the Word of God is the most precious thing that you own. Guard it. Preserve it. Feed it. Nurture it. Strengthen it. In private prayer and in learning more of the Scriptures. Because it is only by faith that we can behold Christ for who He is. So I said that it's reception of the doctrine that's being emphasized here. It says, believe me that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me. This is very high and difficult doctrine. This is the Trinity that we're talking about. The relationship of the Father and the Son. I can't figure that out, and I wouldn't have discovered it unless Christ told it to me. And so we believe, and then we enjoy. He... uh, Notice that he doesn't just repeat this to Philip. He repeats this to all of them. In Greek, this is lost in English. In Greek, believe is plural. The command to believe is plural. So it's given to all the disciples. It's therefore given to all of us. That we are to believe that the glory of God is in the face of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, this life is a life of trouble. As Job said... Man is born into trouble as the sparks fly upward. The question you have to ask yourself is, where are you going to find a place for your feet? Where are you going to find a place that is unshakable and immovable? Because I guarantee you, when the the Lord's storms come into your life, the things you thought were unshakable will be very shakable. The people that you relied upon will show themselves to be unreliable. So what are you going to rely upon? You have to rely on the one thing that is immovable, that is eternal, that is unshakable. This is what Paul the Apostle says in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he says this, Second Corinthians 4.15 All things are for your sakes that grace having spread through the many may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. Therefore we do not lose heart even though our outward man is perishing yet the inward man is renewed day by day for our light affliction which is but for a moment is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Well, we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are unseen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal, unchangeable. The glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your mercies to us in giving us the Lord Jesus and that He is the image of the invisible God. We ask, O Lord, that by faith You would help us to see Him more and more. 
to behold your glory in his face, to be conformed more and more to his image, for we know that our inner man is renewed. Help us to look to the things that are unseen by faith, and we pray all of this for Jesus' sake. Amen.